This podcast is brought to you by public.com, the investing social network. Public is a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. There are a few investing apps out there, but here's what's different about public. There are social features that allow people to share and discover new ideas, and the app supports responsible investing habits, so they don't encourage day trading, nor do they offer margin accounts or options. Features like safety labels on potentially risky stocks give members more complete context. Public has also opted out of payment for order flow, so they don't sell your trades to third parties. Public's community is about 40% women and 45% people of color, so its members come from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life. Conversations on public span deep dives into new IPOs, as well as general insights on financial wellness and category trends. You can even use group chats to build investing clubs with your friends. Head over to public.com to sign up and start with a free slice of stock. Get going with as little as $1, and if you're looking to transfer your portfolio over from another brokerage, they'll even cover fees for accounts valued at over $150. Some fine print, valid for U.S. residents 18 years and older, and subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. Hi, everyone. It's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. And in this episode, I am joined by Dan Preston, the co-founder and CEO of MetroMile, one of the FinTechs that actually has gone public in the past few months. So I'm really excited to dive in. He has that. There's a lot of other exciting things to get into here, too. So, Dan, how are you doing? How's the pandemic been treating you? <laughs> I'm doing well, thanks. Um, I think probably like you and others, uh, spending a lot of time at home, um, but excited to start to meet up with the team again um, and look at the world in a new way these next uh, these next several months. Totally. So Metro Mile is one that I would say some of our listeners are definitely familiar with you guys. Others are not. Um, let's do a quick background on what exactly you guys do. You're in the insurance space, but let's dive deeper. That's right. Yeah. At a high level, Metro Mile is a uh, digital auto insurer. Um, we offer per mile insurance. So instead of a flat monthly fixed cost that you pay, um, you actually only pay for the miles that you actually drive. And so for the two thirds of drivers across the US who drive less than the average, um, we can save those customers about 47% on average. Um, and everything you do with Metro Mile uh, is um, highly engaging and digital. And so um, we connect with your car and through that help you with more than just saving money on auto insurance, but we also help you avoid parking tickets and help you diagnose car issues. Um, and when you have a claim, uh, it's done in a fully uh, kind of mobile and seamless fashion um, that's typically fully automated. Um, and so it's been a been an exciting business to build um, and looking forward to expanding nationwide um, actually over the course of the next couple of years. How many states are you guys available in right now? And then roughly, like at what mileage point does it make sense to use someone like Metro Mile versus your traditional auto insurer? Absolutely. Yeah, so we're, we're available in eight states today. Um, and we're rapidly uh, adding states um, starting in the second half of this year. Um, so you know, we should be in, um, in all states very soon. Um, typically, someone is going to save with Metro Mile when they drive less than 12,000 miles a year or um, 1,000 miles a month. Um, our average customer 
um, typically drives about five or 600 miles a month. Um, and that's how we've calculated that 47% uh, savings on average. Um, and so, it, but it depends on, you know, where you live and which state and all of that. But um, typically if you drive less than a thousand miles a month, you'll save. Awesome. Um, so going off of that, you guys ha went public via a SPAC. I believe it was what, November, December last year. So it was very recent. Talk to me a little bit about that thought process. Like why did a SPAC make sense for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, yeah, we announced the SPAC back in November and um, became a properly um, publicly traded company in um, February, so about three months ago. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, we were assessing the right path for the company, the right way to fund this next um, phase of growth for, for Metro Mile. Um, and we'd hit an important inflection point where, uh, you know, the business had gotten its, you know, economics right. Uh, we had demonstrated our ability to scale. Um, and uh, as we were looking at the different avenues to fund our growth, we found was that by accessing the public markets, um, we could fully fund the business um, and get ourselves to ultimately a cash flow positive and profitable business with with that fundraise. Um, and so by doing so, it allowed us to work with uh, a much larger base of um, potential investors um, and also, um, I think, just the right milestone for the company at the right time. Um, and so ultimately decided to go down this path. Um, I think what the, the SPAC itself allowed us to do um, was to be able to tell the full story of, of Metro Mile um, and work with a sponsor also, um, the, the Cohen family that, that um, founded this back, um, to uh, work with them on how to approach the market with the story. Um, and they're very disciplined and understand the insurance market really well um, and were the right partner for us in bringing the company public. So why why was the SPAC the right route versus a traditional IPO in the sense that I mean, SPACs have been around for a while, but I just feel like there's been such an influx of them. Like you can look at the dollar volume in it. Like and I, I know it's different based on which company. It sounds like for you guys, it was more so like you can tell the whole story like years down the line and people can really grasp why they would be buying your stock versus their traditional IPO where that gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think you captured it really well. Um, so there, I think there's two key parts to it. Uh, there, there are a lot of companies that I think are at our stage um, that uh, should be public companies, um, but are looking to tell the kind of full story of the company. And for us, of course, we have uh, a, a really rapid um, nationwide expansion coming up. Um, we have a number of um, new and exciting product offerings that we're offering over the next couple of years. And being able to understand the value of our business is really important to understand that context. And so being able to tell the full story is a big part of that. Um, the other is um, what um, what the SPAC allows you to do is work with a sponsor also that can represent to the market they understand um, the business in a deep way as well. Um, and so by working um, with the SPAC sponsor, you can also do kind of the deeper diligence and understanding of the business to be able to then go and tell that full story. To me, picking the sponsor seems like the most, if not like one of the most important decisions in terms of going public via SPAC. Why did you go with the one that you chose? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, what, what we ultimately found um, with the Coens uh, was a group that really understood insurance deeply, um, and the market knew that they understand insurance deeply. Um, and so I think it just brings a lot of credibility to this story. Um, both, um, and, and one of the things that we highlighted for investors from the very beginning is 
um, we uh, have focused on being very disciplined operators of the insurance business. And it's really easy to, to grow an insurance. It's really hard to get your unit economics right and grow the business at the same time. Um, and uh, the, the Coens know this and have a, have a strong investor base that, um, that understands that story. And so our choice there ultimately was a combination of that depth and insurance and also an understanding of this back process itself. Um, and they've, they've done this a number of times um, and have actually been in the uh, SPAC game or market for a number of years. Um, and so I think that was also an attractive part of the partnership in that um, they know how to manage the process and were really helpful to us um, just in, in getting it to that place. Now, changing gears, but another thing that you guys have done recently, uh, we've talked about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies on this podcast before. Uh, never with insurance though. And you guys announced, I think it was like a couple weeks ago, it was right before your most recent earnings report that you're gonna start allowing people later this year to pay with crypto. Talk to me a little bit about this uh, decision because it sounds fascinating, but I also feel like regulators would have a lot of questions. Like would people actually pay with crypto? I'd love the thought process behind this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the, the reason for the announcement uh, in many ways was to begin that conversation. Um, and one of the things we, we actually highlighted in, in our original um, announcement was that this was uh, intended to be the starting point of a conversation, again, with regulators and others who are important um, stakeholders and making sure that this is done in the right way. Um, and I think in general, our focus here is primarily on our customers, um, being able to offer them um, the choice and optionality of being able to manage their financial services in whatever way that they want to. Um, and there's increasing demand, um, and we think uh, accelerating demand from consumers to be able to transact um, and be paid in Bitcoin. And so um, from our perspective, what we're trying to do is match up um, the consumer demand ultimately with the kinds of structures and insurance that are, are known to be um, stable and otherwise uh, done in the right way for, from a regulatory perspective. Um, and so much of what we're doing now is actually spending time in those conversations to make sure that what we bring to market is structured in the right way, et cetera. So um, that ultimately is what, what drove the decision. Um, and we're looking forward to, to having that on the market. Okay. So on this crypto front too, have you decided which coins you're going to put on here? Is it going to be Bitcoin? Could people pay in Dogecoin? And then how are you managing this on the back end? Like if someone pays you in a cryptocurrency, like what are you doing with that cryptocurrency? Yeah, so the, the, the very specifics of that um, are being worked out now. What I'd say generally, um, we are uh, planning to purchase uh, about $10 million of, um, of crypto. Um, and... Uh, from, from a consumer standpoint, I think we do want to offer optionality. And so effectively, the way this would likely work from a consumer standpoint is you would be paid in or be able to remit in any um, crypto. Um, and I think the specific choices of which we would allow are still to be determined. Um, but we would like to be able to offer multiple multiple options for people beyond um, beyond just Bitcoin. So you talked about starting conversations around this. Is that including starting conversations with regulators as well? Because obviously, like insurance is one of the most heavily regulated industries in fintech. I mean, healthcare is probably a little bit more regulated, but it's up there. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's actually one of the primary um, stakeholders. Uh, and conversations have have already started there. Um, one of the important aspects of this is that the you know the, the capital that we hold in the carrier the way that we actually structure that that's not going to change from what um, is traditionally done this is primarily about the interface 
to the consumer. Um, and so we're not necessarily introducing a bunch of new risk into the actual um, insurance entity itself. Um, and that's kind of a critical part of making sure all of this works the right way. Who would be the regulators that you'd have to talk to about this? I, I know a little bit about regulation. Uh, our FTT expert, John Collins, would be able to dive way deeper into this. But who exactly do you have to have these conversations with? Yeah, so um, typically you have these conversations with the, um, the state in which your insurance carrier is domiciled and, and where you, basically the insurance carrier is home. Um, and in our case, we actually have two, both Delaware and California, where we do that. Um, and so that's primarily where the conversations have started. Got it. Okay. Uh, switching gears again, something else that I'm just curious about is that during the pandemic, the whole car ownership thing changed dramatically. Like you saw people in cities starting to buy cars. Yeah. You saw people moving to the suburbs. How exactly has that changed how you guys think about the future? I'm sure there's some people that maybe Metro Mile made sense for before and now it doesn't. And then there's a lot of others where it didn't make sense before and now it does because they didn't think they were going to buy a car. But now they have to make little trips where they would be driving little enough to have this make sense. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting to see the behavior changes um, in driving even in the last like couple of months. Um, so one of the big dynamic shifts that we've seen, of course, is re remote and hybrid work, uh, which is leading to very different driving patterns overall. So one of the things that we've seen is that um, the number of miles driven during the commute hours are down, you know, like 20, 30 percent. But the number of miles driven during the middle of the day uh, has gone up pretty considerably. And this is compared to, to before the pandemic. Um, and what I think this is speaking to is is um, just fundamentally a different relationship between commuting and work. Um, and so what we think is going to happen over the course of the next year is that there will be this bifurcation of behavior where um, some people go back to the way it was before and are commuting in every day as, as they once were. Um, and others, and we think a, a larger and larger part of, um, of the US uh, now starting to commute either partially or completely remote. And I think what, this whole pandemic, I think, has um, emphasized for us is that um, it's reinforced the need for flexible insurance products, ones that are based on um, what you actually do, as opposed to, you know, the demographics of who you are. And so our focus is on, you know, how do we give a product to our customers that they ultimately are the drivers of their cost, right? Whether they use the insurance product or not, ultimately is what defines the actual payments that they make. Um, to their insurance company and so what we um what we expect to happen is there will be this larger and larger market of customers who are now driving less than the average um, and we're going to be a great fit for those customers what about um people just what if they're moving farther away and maybe doing more road trips and stuff like that because i know that there's a lot of my friends have done road trips around the country this year have you seen any interesting data around that yeah, um, so we certainly, especially during the pandemic, saw a spike in behavior on weekends relative to um, weekdays. And so you end up seeing a lot longer trips, but fewer of them. Um, and so what that means for, say, a Metro Mile customer um, is that the, the total number of miles is actually going to be less because you have far fewer trips, um, but even the ones that you take are, are longer. Um, and we actually offer in uh, all of our states a cap on um, the daily number of miles, either 150 or 250 miles um, per day or the maximum you'd pay. But one of the other benefits um, 
in this change of behavior is that when you go on those longer trips, you're typically on um, less risky roads, right? You're going for longer periods of time on back roads or highways uh, that are less congested, and you're actually not exposed to as many potential opportunities for accidents. And so what that will mean for a Metro Mile customer in, in most of our states is that your per mile rate will actually come down because the um, driving itself is less risky than it once was. And so even though you may drive a long trip uh, between both the lower rate that you get by being a less risky driver and um, by us only charging up to a certain cap, you'll end up um, still saving um, pretty significantly relative to what you did before. Oh, that's super interesting. I hadn't even thought about just the the day, time of day changing, yeah. the routes that you're taking changing. That's fascinating. Um, on that front, you guys have always stuck with doing this pay per mile, essentially insurance. Is there a world where you guys expand into other insurance offerings, just given that there are others in the, in the industry that have, you know, they start with one area of insurance and they do another sort of like a lot of challenger banks start with one area and then they move into other things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at, at our core, we're about creating customer choice. So. Um, the flexibility of per mile insurance allows you to choose when and how much insurance you actually pay for. Um, we uh, we also believe that it's important to be able to, in many cases, bundle your products together with similar offerings that can offer you the same kind of flexibility or better customer experience. Um, so we actually recently announced um, a partnership with Hippo um, that offers a great digital homeowners insurance experience. Um, and uh, by bundling the two products together, um, which we will launch by the end of this year, um, you'll be able to save an additional, uh, you know, 10 to 15% on your insurance, um, on both products by bundling them together. Um, and what we're really excited about is, um, you know, they, they have a very strong, um, platform that allows us to offer a very customized experience to, to the customer. Um, and by bundling them together, not only to get the convenience of the two products, but you also get the discount associated with it. Um, so. I think you can expect from us, in addition to some of the kind of more traditional insurance products that we want to offer alongside um, auto, uh, being able to offer more services over time that can enhance um, not only your uh, insurance experience, but also your car ownership experience. Um, and so I, I, I would certainly agree. I think there's more and more opportunity over time. If anyone does want to check you guys out, which eight states are you available in right now? And you said it was second half of this year where we should see a lot, if not all states go up. Right. So today we're in California, Oregon, Washington, uh, Illinois, Arizona, New Jersey, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Um, and then, yes, we'll start to uh, enter new states uh, in the second half of this year. Um, and so we're, we're anticipating there are 13 this year and then next year, the, the remaining part of the U.S. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. I'm excited to see the state expansion, how this crypto project goes. We'll have to come have you come back on once the, the crypto launches, because I, I need to know how many people are actually going to be paying with crypto. I'm a little bit skeptical that a lot of them will be, but you never know. You never know. <laughs> I, I'd love that. Yeah. And it, I think it starts small and grows a lot over time. So. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you again. Um, otherwise, everyone listening to this, go rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and let us know who else you want to have on here too. Um, otherwise, we will uh, see you again next time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Take care.